Hi, this is Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, and I've got a podcast. We call it Being American. In each episode, we talk about the major challenges that people and families and communities all over the country are facing that need real solutions and how a better understanding of our shared values and objectives can help us bridge the kinds of differences that keep us from those solutions. I interview political figures, elected officials, grassroots organizers, regular citizens, folks in and out of politics and civic life who are in search, like me, of common wisdom in these uncommon times. Join us and help bridge the divide. It's the Being American podcast, which you can subscribe to or download wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For All, a podcast by ACLU of Mississippi, focused on the people and projects that promote civil liberties and rights in our state. We're offering lessons and stories on how to advocate for all Mississippians. I'm Candace Coleman, the Communications and Advocacy Director at ACLU of Mississippi, and... Let's just start off by saying that this conversation is going to be very real, very raw. We are recording this literally hours after the Supreme Court decision came down that overturns Roe v. Wade. And with me to discuss that and how it's going to impact Mississippians and everyone across the United States uh, is Vera Lyons, our policy counsel here at ACLU of Mississippi. Welcome, Vera. Thanks, Candace. We're going to jump right into it. And today... It's been everywhere all across the news. We know you've already heard about it, but we're going to break it down a little bit more just so people can know how this will impact women and people who can get pregnant here in Mississippi. Yesterday or day before yesterday, there wasn't even an, an opinion day scheduled for today. Um, and so I believe last night every and yesterday, everyone was very anxious about what could possibly happen and hearing it in or rather reading it in that moment. Um, I know my heart dropped. What about yours? Yeah, I I think we expected this. I think we've been expecting this. You know, activists who've been in this space longer than me have been expecting this for years. It really became real for me in December during the oral arguments and the questions they were asking and the arguments they were making. And as an attorney, the fact that the Supreme Court even took this case up before December, it seemed that they were setting up um, the ability to overturn Roe. But, you know, even before reading the decision, seeing that on the first page where it says held, Casey and Roe are overturned, it was like, oh my God, this is real. Can you talk about how we got to this point with those, with this specific case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women Health Organization? Yeah, so Roberts wrote in his concurrence today, he criticized um, the other conservative justices for taking it this far. They did not have to fully overturn Roe and Casey. And 
you know, we originally had a decision from Judge Reeves, um, a federal judge, an Obama appointee in Mississippi, when this case first came up saying this is ludicrous, basically, this is clearly unconstitutional because Roe and Casey held that a woman had a right to a pre-viability abortion without undue interference by the state. Um, There's been you know, litigation about that for years, about what doesn't what what does undue interference look like. Um, but generally viability is at twenty-three to twenty-four weeks and women were um could access abortions with some restrictions. You know, not that abortion has been under attack for years because of that. Um but yeah, the fact that they took this case up, you know, the Fifth Circuit said Um, Again, even though the Fifth Circuit is historically conservative, that the 15-week ban was clearly unconstitutional because it wasn't just a regulation. It was an out-and-out ban before those 23 to 24 weeks. So it really became concerning when the Supreme Court decided to even take this case up. They could have just let it go um, and left it at that. And then you had questions from the justices in December that seemed to hint that they were seriously considering overturning Roe. Mississippi has been playing the long game here. Can you talk about what happened here in Mississippi with the six week ban, with the with the ballot initiative? What what was the what was the long game here in Mississippi that happened before we even got to uh, this fifteen week ban? Mississippi for years has had trap laws, which is targeted regulation of abortion providers. We used to have more than one clinic in the state, and I believe it was, um, I I don't remember the exact year, but it was in the 1980s or 1990s that trap laws forced other abortion clinics to close, which is why we only have Jackson Women's Health Organization. We had laws passed that said an abortion clinic could only be so many feet from a church or a school. We had laws passed saying that an abortion clinic has to be an ambulatory surgical center. And the oddity of that is that an abortion procedure that is performed at uh, JWHO is not really one that requires the anesthesia that an ambulatory surgical center is typically provided. We also had rules that the doctors performing abortions had to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, and the conservative politicians would cloak this in a way of saying, oh, this is protecting the health of the mother, but really it was just making abortions more difficult to access. We also had a rule where you have to have a 24-hour waiting period between appointments. And, you know, even though the FDA itself has said that abortion-inducing drugs are safe, such as mifeprestone, um, you know, in other states, nurse practitioners could possibly prescribe those, or you can get a prescription for it and take it at home. But in Mississippi, you had to take it in front of a doctor, and the doctor also had to give you information that is inherently incorrect medically, such as abortions make a higher risk of breast cancer, which we know is incorrect. So we've been chipping away at these freedoms for years. And the fact that we only had one abortion clinic operating in the state made it more difficult for women in North Mississippi, the Delta, which is historically you know, an impoverished, um, underrepresented region having to travel two to three hours to Jackson and then stay overnight, get childcare if they had children, and also take time off of work to get these procedures. So 
the politicians who passed the 15-week ban um, knew what they were doing. I believe the 15-week ban was initially written by um, an advocacy organization that is anti-abortion. And it was just kind of another instance where they knew they would stick it up. They knew it would get sued. And it was kind of a long game of trying to get Roe v. Wade overturned. And I am really kind of scared about what they're going to try in this next upcoming legislative session because so many of these politicians don't seem to be educated about birth control, about what an IUD does, about what IVF does. And we had this personhood amendment in 2011, which would have given a fetus at conception personhood, which is incredibly scary because there are so many ways that a woman can lose a pregnancy and it opens her up to possible criminalization when it was simply a medical issue that she lost the pregnancy in the first place. And Mississippians overwhelmingly did not pass that right. Right. And people were surprised. But honestly, I think that if you talk to Mississippians, a lot of Mississippi women realize where that argument is headed, that if we start personhood at conception, then we're going to go after birth control. And we're already a state that promotes abstinence-only education. So we're not even educating people about how not to end up in a situation where an abortion is required in the first place. Let's talk about what's going to happen now with the trigger bans. Let, let's explain first to people what trigger bans are and then how the one here in Mississippi specifically will uh, take place after, well, in the next couple of days, maybe possibly by the time this podcast comes out, you know, what, what, what is going to happen with the trigger bans? Trigger bans are laws that are in place um, by the state legislature that basically say once Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion is outlawed. Some of them go into effect, effect immediately, um, like Missouri um, has a trigger ban, and it went into effect immediately. Uh, my alma mater is uh, Washington University in St. Louis. They have a um, pretty big medical school and hospital. And one of my friends from college works there and t- sent me a text earlier today that uh, the school had already sent out an email telling all physicians that they cannot perform abortions anymore. And um, with Mississippi, the... I haven't seen yet today. I'm sure we'll get it eventually. Lynn Fitch, the attorney general, is supposed to write a letter that is then published by the secretary of state. And 10 days after publication of that letter, then the abortion clinic will have to close. And we know for a fact that letter is coming. It's not an if, it is a when. She, she, uh, the governor has said it. She has said it. Philip Gunn said it today. Um, that is going to happen. So in about two weeks, or yeah, in, in less than two weeks, we could see the only abortion clinic here in Mississippi closing. And women here in Mississippi now having to travel either. What's the, what's the closest place it's they could go? Florida or Illinois. And, you know, a trip to Destin, which is a pretty common vacation destination for a lot of Mississippians. Um, I know that's about six hours from Jackson. And then Illinois is about seven or eight hours. But the problem with Florida is Governor DeSantis said today that he is already exploring putting even more restrictions on abortions in Florida. So we're going to see clinics overwhelmed. We've already seen clinics overwhelmed in New Mexico because of Texas's SB8. And women are really going to struggle um, to get reproductive health care, especially women of limited financial means. Yeah, we even saw... 
the clinic here in Mississippi starting to get overwhelmed um, right after SB8 was upheld in Texas um, because people were also traveling from Texas to other to to us to Louisiana trying to get that care um, as well. Now they're dri- driving even further distances, having to get a plane ticket. A plane the the way that plane tickets are costing right now, you know. Um, yeah. One thing I will say, though, something, a a bit of hope that I did see on social media today, different people just from all across the nation offering their their homes for people to come stay in uh, in their states. You know, if if they're in New York, um, in Vermont, I saw a tweet in Vermont, someone, you know, offering homes and and things. There are funds out there um, and I will link you all to um, where you can find a list of different funds that you can um, donate to or reach out to if you do need that that service. But I do want to circle back to the impacts here. We are a part of Mississippi Abortion Access Coalition, and a lot of the other organizations in that coalition have been um, working really diligently, really hard, really long for years to get that access to abortion care here in Mississippi. Vera, what is something or, or, or something that you've heard from that coalition um, about their plans on how they'll move forward now that this has happened? It's going to be information about how to get financial resources. Like two of the partners are Shiro and Mississippi in Action, and um, they have abortion funds to help people get reproductive health care. It's also going to be educating people about possibly getting abortion pills via the mail. The abortion pills by mail um, is something that's complicated because the FDA has said that they're safe, but states are actively going to try to ban those. And I anticipate that Mississippi is going to try to ban it. But the question in the courts is going to be, can the states do this? Mm. Because regulating the mail implicates the federal commerce clause, which has typically been left up to Congress. So that is something that could be coming out this next legislative session. What else this legislative session, could we also be seen? We could also be seeing attempts to ban IUDs. Some of the political action groups that have pushed through these abortion bans don't like IUDs. There was a legislator in Missouri in their last session who tried to pass a ban on IUDs, and there's a lot of misinformation about IUDs. Um, People claim they're abortifacients, and they're not. And we could also maybe see some regulation of in vitro fertilization and arguments about what to do with embryos as a result of that process. You know, and that's the part there that's even more baffling to me is how it will also impact that. It, 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 IVF, that is someone who wants to be, uh, wants, obviously wants to be pregnant and wants to have a child. And now you are harming this process for people who want to get pregnant there. Talk about like the importance of having legislators who A, vote for things and, and have my, a, a like-minded who are like-minded with their constituents, um, but also just know what they're voting for because what we have or what we do know is our executive director, Jarvis Dorsch, who was formerly in the legislative session and who was in the session during uh, the passage of the 15-week ban, which, you know, created this whole thunderstorm here. He said not once that they have a hearing with a doctor, not once did they bring in a doctor to come talk about uh, viability to come and talk to them about um, this this topic that is so important right yeah and he also recalled that one of the representatives said that he claimed to know that a six-week fetus was viable 
Which is absolutely incorrect. It's it's not viable until 23 to 24 weeks. It reminded me a lot of the debate over medical marijuana. It just seemed that some of these people just had absolutely no clue over what marijuana actually did. And we're not seeing experts come in. We're not seeing healthcare officials come in and really educate them about this. Yeah, an, an uneducated body making these decisions for, um, for people in... For bodies that they don't even have, you know, they don't even have the the, the ability to uh, carry a carry a pregnancy. Um, I think we I think we did a pretty good job of explaining what will happen next with the trigger ban um, and how this will impact uh, Mississippians here, uh, the closest place that they'll be able to go. Um, Vera has been doing all day today. She's been doing uh, interviews and she's kind of been like our, our number one spokesperson on this topic um, and. I know that it's super tiring and it's, it's super depressing when you have to talk about this over and over again, specifically as a woman, you know, we are younger women who this will impact as well as a young woman as well. And working in this space, I know for myself, it's hurtful that you have politicians who um, not only want to strip away this right, but they also have uh, also in that opinion there it was implications of other rights that can be stripped away from us. Can you talk about specifically why we are saying this is not only affecting abortion rights? This is something that you've probably seen on social media now. People saying this is not um, not only affecting abortion rights. Vera, can you explain to our audience um, what it is that's in that Supreme Court opinion? that highlights this and that uh, indicates to us that this is not only about abortion rights. Yeah, so Roe v. Wade really rested on an interpretation of the 14th Amendment and a right to privacy. And there's not necessarily an explicit right to privacy in the 14th Amendment. It was one the justices carved out in cases before Roe v. Wade. So we have Griswold v. Connecticut, which gave couples a right to privacy in their bedroom and the right to use birth control. We have the Loving case, which gave us interracial marriage. We have Obergefell, which gave us gay marriage. And um, frustratingly enough, in Clarence Thomas's concurrence, he calls out those cases and says they need to be re-examined. And kind of hypocritically, he failed to mention loving, which is interesting because he himself is in an interracial marriage. Yeah, I find that funny. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of mm. like rights for us, not right, not rights for you. Yeah, rights for me and mine in my household over here in my situation, but not anybody else. And as a woman who grew up in Mississippi... It's incredibly disheartening. You know, we talk about the brain drain in Mississippi and people want to leave. And it's like, I I understand it at this point. It's why would you, as a young person, want to be in a state that sees your body as kind of property of the state? I hear you. I hear you. Um, which is why we need folks to stay and fight alongside us because... If we continue to leave our our voices and our and our opinions and how we want our state to be remembered in history, it's going to continue to get harder and harder to to have those voices heard and to and to change the wave here in Mississippi. But I totally get it. It's it's really really hard, but we're here. We're fighting, and we're going to keep on going. And I will say, like <laughs> I am heartened by friends I have who are fighting for this. Yeah. You know, like one of the members of Mississippi Abortion Access Coalition. Um, Elizabeth Davidson, who's the head of Faith in Women, which is a clergy-based congregation. Like, we are family friends, you know, we grew up going to the same church, and, 
you know, we are here, we are fighting. And, you know, we, even though is as a Mississippian, you typically grow up in a more conservative, more religious background, you know, we realize that, um, that women have rights to their own bodies. And to clarify, it wasn't necessarily my parents telling me that. Like, my parents are very supportive of my work with the ACLU, but it was uh, the congregation we attended at the time, and it was the school I attended and the messaging we got. Like, um, I I went to um, private school up until... Um, 10th grade here I went to Jackson Prep and for a while they had a policy that if you got pregnant you had to leave the school and there were girls who got pregnant but the guy who got her pregnant got to stay wow so it was that kind of ingrained um, misogyny that you're growing up in here So what what is the next steps moving forward? Um, we will obviously be continuing to work with our coalition partners in uh, making sure that people know about the different funds and the different uh, services that they can reach out to to be able to access abortion, even though it will be much harder. Um, but we also want to make sure that that resource is there. So um, ACLU of Mississippi's website is aclu dash ms.org and we um, do have a know your rights page up there as soon as that uh, trigger ban goes into effect you will know we'll have it posted there so people will know Um, but I would suggest now you know start preparing start preparing to have to leave the state of Mississippi if you want to get abortion access um, other steps that we'll be doing obviously watching the legislative session for those different that different legislation that could be coming out that we know will probably be coming out that will attack our other um, other rights that will go further okay so that was a lot of doom and gloom um, what is your your hope for the future here in Mississippi when it comes to reproductive rights My hope is that people will band together. You know, we're seeing a lot of support from LGBTQ allies who realize that because Roe v. Wade is overturned, gay marriage is on the line. We're seeing support from people out of state. Like when we held a rally last Friday, we had caravans from Texas and Louisiana. And I think that people who are going to be faced with reproductive choices really have to band together. You know, you were talking about people offering their homes. I saw some of that today on social media too. And it's not always going to be about voting because unfortunately in this country, voting has kind of been oppressed because of gerrymandering and chopping away at the Voting Rights Act. It's really going to take us coming together and looking out for each other and getting rid of judgments and getting rid of judgments as to like, oh, why would she have an abortion? You know, that's that's not really something that the person other than the person getting an abortion should be calling into question. Yeah, it's community. That's something that we're missing lately is community Um, and our society itself needs community. And I think, you know, in the South, as much as the South gets maligned sometimes um, from people in the North, the South has a strong sense of community. I think this I think that Southerners tend to have each other's backs. So that is what I'm hopeful about going forward. Okay, well, thank you so much, Vera. 
I think we kind of answered the final question that I typically ask at the end of the uh, the episode. That is, how do we show up for each other? Um, and we just answered it there. It's building community. It is taking action together. Um, and it's talking about these issues in normalizing the conversation around abortion so that we can take away the stigma and that we can all work together to make sure that we get that right back here in Mississippi. Thank you again, Vera, for joining me today. Remember, you all can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ACLU underscore MS. You can also find us on TikTok. And I heard that uh, one of our latest TikToks with Vera in it actually is kind of going a little viral. So check that out. And then on Facebook, you can find us at ACLU of Mississippi. All right. Now go advocate for something.